Second Timothy, chapter three, and I will be reading the entire chapter this Lord's Day. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May God bless The word is it's read and now as his word goes forth as it's preached. One of those great biblical truths that was recovered and taught and defended by reformers during the Protestant Reformation was the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is adequate 
an adequate source of revelation to meet all of our needs for God's wisdom in every area of life pertaining to redemption and salvation and pertaining to life itself. Just as Jesus Christ is a sufficient Savior, so He has given to us a sufficient revelation. We don't need another Savior and we don't need another revelation other than what Christ has given to us. The Romish church taught that the Scripture was inspired by God and was an infallible rule for faith and life. However, the Reformers proclaimed that the Scripture was the only infallible rule for faith and life. They proclaimed sola scriptura, Scripture alone. The Roman Catholic Church declared that Scripture was insufficient and incomplete by itself to give man all of God's will for faith and life. On the other hand, the Reformers preached that Scripture was absolutely sufficient and complete to give man all he needed to know the will of God in every area of life. The Roman Catholic Church believed in addition to the Scripture, one also needed the oral tradition of the church, which was declared by the Roman Catholic Church to be the Word of God as well. The Word of God not written. It was oral tradition, they said. But it was passed on from Christ, not having been recorded in the Scripture. These were the words of Christ, so the Roman Catholic Church teaches. These were the words of Christ that were communicated orally to the apostles, The apostles never incorporated them into the Word of God either, passed them on to their disciples who passed it on to their disciples until the Roman Catholic Church finally recognized these officially as being the teaching of the church. I might just simply say, before I contrast what the Reformed position was with regard to that, that this parallels actually the view of the scribes and the Pharisees at the time of Christ. They believed in an oral tradition as well. They called it the the, uh, tradition of the elders. And I quote from Milton Terry in his classic work, Biblical Hermeneutics where he demonstrates why the rabbinic tradition at the time of Christ was absolutely unreliable and why Christ said it was unreliable. Terry says, According to Jewish tradition, Moses received at Sinai, in addition to the Pentateuch, an unwritten oral law and afterward delivered it over to Joshua. Joshua delivered the same to the elders and they to the prophets from which it came into the possession of the men of the great synagogue. The last of whom was Simon the just, who was a contemporary with Alexander the Great, about 325 B.C. 
Simon transmitted it to Antigonus of Soco, and so it was passed onward until it came into possession of the schools of Hillel and Shammai. These schools, especially that of Hillel, sifted and preserved these laws until Rabbi Judah, the holy, about 200 A.D., compiled and codified them in six Sedarim, thenceforth known as the Mishnah. Now, you will remember that it was exactly as I said earlier, it was exactly that oral tradition which Jesus Christ condemned when he was here upon the earth. He said to the elders at that time, you make void the law and the commandments of God by your tradition, this oral tradition. And it is exactly the same thing that was happening throughout church history with the Roman Catholic Church as they said there was an oral tradition which was not recorded in the Scripture. I ask you, how in the world can we verify outside of the Scripture that something is true? The Roman Catholic Church claims to have that authority. The Reformers said, no, you don't have that authority. Only God, by the Spirit speaking through the Scripture, has that authority to declare the will of God. And we will cling to the will of God as revealed in the Scripture. John Calvin wrote in his commentary on 2 Timothy 3.17 these words, The Scripture is sufficient for perfection or maturity. Accordingly, he who is not satisfied with Scripture desires to be wiser than is either proper or desirable. Let me read that last sentence again. Accordingly, he who is not satisfied with Scripture desires to be wiser than is either proper or desirable. A person who is not satisfied with Scripture desires to be wiser than God Himself. In other words, one who desires to know more than God is revealed in the Holy Scriptures and is not satisfied with that alone as being the mind of God says, in fact, that he knows more than God. For the Scripture, according to its own testimony, dear ones, the Scripture is the totality of the revelation and the wisdom of God which God has given to human beings today. Thus, our spiritual forefathers in the faith considered anything purporting to be equivalent in authority to the Holy Scripture, whether the pronouncements of the Pope, or some church council, or some other expert in any other field, whether it be psychology or biology, history, law, or whether some other sacred book of another religion, like the Book of Mormon or the Quran, or whether any new revelations of the Spirit that you might find in various Pentecostal or charismatic churches, anything that would be added to this in authority makes the word of God insufficient, not sufficient. 
And they said, that is heresy. That is false teaching. The word of God alone is sufficient. There is no other standard for faith and practice than the word of God. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1, section 6 says this. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Quite clear as to where our forefathers in the faith were coming from. Now, where did this view of the sufficiency of Scripture come from in the preaching, the proclamation of the Reformers? Where did they get this view? It came from the Scripture itself. For the Bible itself declares that to be the case. God, in fact, as we search the scriptures, dear ones, God is continually calling us as frail, weak human beings to distrust our own fallible human understanding and wisdom. We find in his word, for example, in Proverbs 28:26, the Lord says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. He who trusts, we could paraphrase it, he who trusts in his own feelings, in his own thoughts, in his own conscience, is a fool. Isaiah 5:21. Here the prophet is speaking against Jerusalem and Judah. And the prophet Isaiah says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Isaiah 47.10, the prophet speaking against Babylon. The prophet says, For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. Your wisdom, Isaiah says, your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. Your own thoughts have perverted you. They have led you astray. See, that's the... Not the sufficiency of Scripture. That's the sufficiency of self. That's the sufficiency of man. On the contrary, God calls us to trust Him with all of our heart. And to lean not on unto our own understanding. The Lord God calls us to search the scriptures. To know his mind and his will. In fact, we find this approbation. We find God sincerely pointing out to 
we who are believers that these Christians in Acts 17 verses 10 through 12 were actually noble minded, were actually fair minded, were actually esteemed in his sight. But notice what they did. Now, this follows the persecution in Thessalonica when the apostle had to flee Thessalonica because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He fled and went to Berea, another city. There we find these words in Acts 17.10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. What's interesting here is that we don't simply have preaching to them, someone like myself who speaks, who can speak fallibly, but they had the actual apostles of Jesus Christ proclaiming the truth to them. Now, they could not err in their proclamation of the truth. They were preserved from being able to do so. And yet, they are called fair-minded, noble-minded, because they even searched the Scriptures to see that the things the apostles were saying were true. And God calls you, the people of God, to search the Word of God, to receive the Word of God with readiness, and to... Compare Scripture with what you hear coming from the pulpit, from Bible studies. And where you see something contradicting the Word of God then to come to us, to come to me, to address that issue, so that together we can go to the Scriptures and search the Scriptures. God calls us to be like-minded in the faith. Not to simply hold our differences. You believe that, that's okay. I believe this, that's okay. Let's just agree to disagree. No, God calls us to search the Scriptures and to be like-minded in the faith which was committed unto us. The text that we have before us today, 2 Timothy chapter 3, especially addresses the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture. And I would have us consider this text together today. During the persecution of the church Under the reign of Nero in about 68 A.D., the Apostle Paul was arrested again and imprisoned in Rome. And it appears that this particular time he was arrested, he was not to be released again. That this was most likely the last letter that he wrote before his own death. And from his prison cell, Paul writes one last letter to his beloved 
and faithful son in the faith, Timothy. As we've noted before, things that you write just before you're about to die are usually quite important. This was certainly important. Paul was giving to his son in the faith that which he continued to be truly, truly important. And in chapter 3, we find the importance, and on into chapter 4, the importance of preaching the truth. Listen to what Paul says. We've read chapter 3, but continue for a few verses into chapter 4 just to see Paul's theme in this letter of being faithful to the calling and the ministry which has been entrusted unto Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you. Notice the language. I charge you. Therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his coming, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you remember Paul speaking to Timothy, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That was what was important to Paul as he was about to pass from this life to the next, that he commit the charge to be faithful to the truth, to ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what is it? As we see in chapter 3, Timothy... Paul says Timothy will endure persecution and affliction for proclaiming the truth. What is it that will sustain Timothy, a young pastor in the church of Ephesus? What will sustain him in the midst of this persecution and affliction that he would endure? In the opposition of the false teachers who would bring in error into the church, why and how will he be able to endure? Well, it's the same thing that will sustain you. It's the same thing that will sustain me, a minister of the gospel today. It's the very fact that we have a sufficient revelation in the word of God. The fact that we have the holy scriptures that have been once and for all delivered to the saints. We have a record from God Himself, the truth to proclaim to the nations. That is what will sustain us. Human beings can, can destroy this body. They can banish this body from this land and from this earth by death. But they cannot banish the truth of Jesus Christ. The truth of God will endure from one age to the next age. And so, Timothy is called to be faithful to that truth. (coughs) 
The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or quite literally, all Scripture is God-breathed. As I put my hand in front of my mouth like this, I can feel the breath as I speak. I can feel the breath. Uh, hitting my hand. This particular phrase that all Scripture is God-breathed carries that kind of an analogy, that picture, that this is the actual that you find recorded here. This is the actual words of God. More sure, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, than even the revelation of His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. We have a more sure word of prophecy in the Holy Scriptures, Peter says. Many of us would say, I'd really believe the truth if Jesus appeared to me and transfigured Himself before me. Peter says, you have a more sure word of prophecy in the Scriptures. You remember the problem with the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man said, you know, Lord, send people back uh, from the dead to speak to my brother, to my family about this awful place to where I've gone. You remember what Abraham said. If they will not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe if even one is raised from the dead. So you see, seeing is not believing. Hearing and obeying is believing. Now, there are many false views of inspiration. For I'd like to highlight for you First point in the body of my sermon, I'd like to highlight four, first of all, four false views of inspiration and show that this one little phrase, all scripture is God breathed, nails those particular false views of inspiration to the wall. First of all, the first false view, some say the Bible is only inspired in the sense that it is a great work of literature. The Bible is inspired like Shakespeare or like Dickens or like Twain. It's an inspirational book. But it doesn't make such a claim for itself, does it? The Bible doesn't claim for itself simply to be an inspirational book like all these other books. Is that what the Bible says about itself? Absolutely not. It claims to be absolutely unique. All Scripture is God-breathed. There is no other work on the face of this earth that we can say is God-breathed. Scripture alone is God-breathed. It shoots that particular false view down. Uh, others conclude another false view of inspiration is that the Bible is inspired, but only parts of it are inspired. Certainly not all of it, only in the areas of faith and salvation. 
Those parts are inspired, not when the Bible speaks of science or history or ethics or family or, or politics. It's not inspired when it speaks in those areas, only when it relates to faith and salvation. Another false view of, of inspiration. That's not what this text says. That's not what the Bible claims for itself. The Bible says all Scripture, not parts of Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed. The third false view teaches this, that the Bible is inspired, but so are other religious writings. So are other books like the decrees of the popes or the councils of the Roman Catholic Church. Those are inspired, so the Roman Catholic Church would teach. Or the Book of Mormon is inspired, according to the Mormon Church. Or the Koran, or the Vedas, or the New Revelations of men and women in Pentecostal and Charismatic Churches today. But Paul is absolutely clear here, dear ones, when he says very clearly, all Scripture is God-breathed. Not the sacred writings that all of these other religious groups claim to be holy and inspired. No, only Scripture. All Scripture is inspired. Nothing else is God-breathed. And the last false view is this one that the Bible is inspired but only when I experience it only when I encounter it only when the light goes on in my head and it makes sense to me then it becomes inspired then it becomes alive and real and authoritative and infallible well, that's the view of the neo-Orthodox, the view of the liberals. But notice again, that's the wrong answer. All Scripture is God-breathed. Not all Scripture becomes God-breathed once you experience it, once you encounter it. It is. Now, the word is in the Greek language is omitted, but it's elliptical. It's a common Greek construction. And we supply very naturally there the word is. All Scripture is God-breathed. If one does not believe the Scripture to be God-breathed, does that change the character of the Word of God in some way? Does it then not become God-breathed because a person doesn't believe it to be God-breathed? Any more than if somebody doesn't believe my name is Greg Price, that it means that my name is not Greg Price. Or because an atheist does not believe that God exists, that God doesn't exist, therefore. Of course not. The character and the name of God and the authority of God is imprinted upon every page, upon every word of the infallible word of God. It bears his name. 
Whether the whole world denied that it was the word of God would not change the character, the veracity and truthfulness of God's word. It continues to be true because God has declared it. But one can only recognize it and understand it to be true as the Holy Spirit gives him the illumination of the Spirit. One will continue to reject the Word of God until the Holy Spirit changes his heart. It continues to be the Word of God. It is inspired. But then, once a person is regenerated, once his mind is illuminated, he sees Indeed, he agrees with God. Your word is God-breathed and inspired. And I will obey and follow it. The second main point has to do with the passage in verse 16 where we find four profitable uses for the word of God. That word of God, which is God-breathed, has four profitable uses that are specifically mentioned here. Let's consider very briefly these profitable uses of the word of God. First of all, most importantly, now ask yourself, is there any reason that doctrine is the first one mentioned? Absolutely. You don't know how to live in a very practical way unless you know the will of God and what he has revealed in the scriptures. The very first area is that of doctrine. Dear ones, today we say with much grief and heartache that we are impoverished as a land. We are impoverished in the, the church of Jesus Christ, those who profess to be churches of Jesus Christ, we are impoverished and hardly able to stand today before the world because we do not understand and know the Word of God. We would rather, I think more often than not, we would rather be entertained by someone standing before them, telling them jokes and all kinds of funny stories, than to hear God speak to your soul and to the souls of people and congregations throughout this country. People would actually prefer that. It is exactly, it was happening in Paul's time. He said people would like to have their ears tickled. And it is happening today and happens in church after church after church. People want to be entertained. They want to be made to feel good when they come to worship God on God's holy day. But dear ones, that's not the purpose of worship, to come to be entertained or to come in order to be made to feel good. The purpose of worship is to offer unto the most high and holy God acceptable praise and worship. That is the purpose of worship. And when we do not come with that heart attitude, and when we do not bring the very sacrifices that He has commanded us to bring to Him, we bring shame and dishonor. We rob God of His glory. 
we detract from his glory and he does not receive it. How can he? It's not what he asked. It's not what he commanded, I should say. It's not what he appointed. It's not what he required at our hands. Any more than the children of Israel could have brought sacrifices contrary to the will of God in the Old Testament. Any more than Abel could have brought a sacrifice contrary to the will of God and God, or I'm sorry, uh, Cain. And God received that sacrifice. We see what happened with Cain, incidentally. God did not receive it. And God will not receive our offerings and sacrifices today unless we bring it as he has commanded. So often people say about doctrine, doctrine is boring. It's hard to understand. And everyone seems to have their own view of doctrine and teaching anyway, so what's the big deal? I'm not interested in doctrine. I want something practical. I want something I can experience. See, that's the direction Christianity is going in today. The problem is, dear ones, how will you know what God says about your practical experience unless you are guided by his teaching, by his doctrine? You can't possibly know. You're simply shooting from the hip. You're simply flying by the seat of your pants. You're not obeying the Lord God. Hosea 4, 6 God says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Boy, if that wasn't ever so true in our day and age. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That was the cry of God. There's a famine in the land. Maybe not a famine with regard to... My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That was the cry of God. There's a famine in the land. Maybe not a famine with regard to food. Maybe not a famine with regard to jobs as such. But there is definitely a famine of the truth of God in our land today and in the churches that profess the name of Jesus Christ. How will you know the difference between sin and righteousness in every area of life? All the ethical decisions that you need to make without doctrine, dear ones. How will you know how to worship God without doctrine? How will you know what is a true church and a false church without doctrine? How will you know whether... As you contemplate marriage, whether you should use birth control or not, without doctrine. How will you know how to educate your children without doctrine? How will you know whether to allow your children to date or whether to have them court without doctrine? How will you know whether or not to use physical discipline? Spanking them, corporal punishment without doctrine, the teaching of God's word. How will you know whether it's appropriate for women to stand and to preach or to lead in a church without doctrine? 
Everything that we believe is based upon the teaching of God's word. Every act, every decision we make should find its source in the teaching of God's word. There is no neutrality in life. We can't say this is a domain, this is an area in which I do not need God's truth. Every area of life is guided by the word of God, by doctrine. And you see, dear ones, it was the doctrinal preaching of the reformers and of the Puritans that brought the knowledge of God into every area of life so that the farmer and the coppersmith could carry on theological discussions with the elders and the pastors of the church. You see, theology, the prince of the sciences, was not left just for the the theologians to discuss. But because of reformational preaching and teaching, the Bible no more bound to the pulpit, but the Bible given to the people to read and to study. Theology became something important to all of God's people. And dear ones, never, never, never let us fall into the trap of not discussing amongst ourselves a doctrinal issue simply because it is controversial. Do we believe the scripture is profitable for doctrine or not? Well, let's speak the truth in love and let us not run frightened or scared. You see, the word of God says that it is through this very process as we may disagree on some issues, as we sit down and we begin and continue to study the truth together in the congregation and in the presbytery, we become iron sharpening iron. Rather than rusting, we become sharp and useful and profitable in the master's use and service. In fact, there, I would go as far as to say, this is where our love for one another is really tested and tried. When we do disagree and we can yet sit down together and because we believe in an all-sufficient Bible, we can sit together and hammer these things out together. Because we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And because we are submitted, our conscience, our thoughts, our feelings are submitted to God's infallible standard. More often than not, my experience has been, as a pastor in churches... That people, when it comes to discussing, debating doctrine and teaching, more often the case is that we become defensive. We become threatened or proud or unteachable or angry or fearful. And that's as, as true, I believe, the situation my experience teaches me, it's as true in the lives of elders and pastors and teachers as much as it is in the case 
of members of the congregation. We all must be submitted to the word of God as the only sufficient standard for faith and practice. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 says this. Let me turn there very quickly. James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's the wisdom that we as God's people, whether an elder or a member of the congregation, that is the wisdom that we must earnestly pray that God will bestow upon us to have wisdom that is peaceable, gentle, willing to yield when we're wrong. Willing to say to one another, you know, the word of God doesn't teach that. I'm willing to yield because God's word lords it over my conscience and is the only lord of my conscience. In fact, dear ones, we should never be afraid to go to the scripture together. Our attitude should rather be, if you have the truth and I don't have it, I'm so much a lover of the truth, I simply want to know the truth. That should be our attitude as we approach Whatever subject, willing to submit our conscience and our feelings, our thoughts to God's word. There's no need to be defensive, therefore. When we are studying the truth, we have an infallible standard. Let us simply commit and submit our minds and our understanding to its authority. And I must say that before we leave this subject of doctrine very quickly... Dear ones, do not turn your backs on truth. Do not turn your backs on the light in any area to which God shows and gives you light. Because when you do not embrace the truth and the light, you push the truth and light away from you. And the further you push it away, darkness automatically begins to fall. Darkness, not light. Not understanding. You embrace the light, more light comes. You push it away, darkness comes. Embrace the light. And as children of light, we have seen in First John, we are called to walk in the light even as God is in the light. The second and third 
use, profitable use of the scripture is, according to the Apostle Paul, reproof and correction. Now, reproof and correction are simply opposite sides of the same coin. Scripture is profitable for reproof. That is, it's profitable for rebuke. It's profitable to use to call one another to repentance when we sin or err in regard to the truth. But it's also profitable not only and not simply to rebuke and to reprove, but it's also profitable to correct, to give this person the right teaching, not simply to nail them, as it were, to to the floor there, but, but this word of God is that which is orthodox. That's the word from which the Greek word uh, is derived, orthodox, which simply means straight teaching. We give them the straightness of the truth. We've shown them the crookedness of their way in this area. And we have done so, according to God's word, with meekness, with gentleness. Looking to our own hearts and lives first. Judging our own sins. Taking the beam out of our own eye. And then humbly going to our brother or sister. And pointing out these particular truths to them. It's profitable for reproof and for correction. In Proverbs chapter 1. We find these words, verse 22, as wisdom, as divine wisdom calls out to people. So divine wisdom through the word of God. So the Lord Jesus Christ calls out to his people today using these words. Listen to what Jesus says to you, his people today. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses, at the openings of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my reproof. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you have disdained all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm, at your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish comes upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. And so the Lord reminds us again and again, dear ones, 
love, that is true love, graciously corrects and reproves. It doesn't run away. It doesn't run away in marriage. And it doesn't run away in the church. It reproves and corrects. And as long as there is a hearing, as long as that person is listening, and though the change may be slow, as long as that person hears, the door is still open. The door is still open. And we continue by God's grace to work together to come to an agreement as to what God's word teaches The last thing, the last use, is that of instruction in righteousness. The scripture instructs or trains us in the Christian life and in all areas of righteousness. Now I ask you, dear ones, does the church need to be trained in righteousness? Do elders need to be trained in righteousness? Absolutely. We must be trained in righteousness. How will we do so but through that infallible word of God? We'll learn what is that pure doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. Does a family need to be trained in righteousness? Do husbands and fathers need to know what the Bible says about their role in the family? Do mothers and wives need to know what the Bible says about their role and children as well? Absolutely. The scripture trains the family in righteousness. What about the civil magistrate? Does he need to be trained in righteousness or can he simply go his own way and do his own thing? He needs to be trained in righteousness as well, for he is the minister of God. And God will hold him accountable. The last point, very, very quickly, dear ones, is this from this text. We note finally that the sufficiency of Scripture applies to all areas of life, both to faith and life, both to salvation and all practical areas of living. First of all, note that Scripture is redemptive. It declares to us our desperate need of a Savior. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, we find these words. But as for you, continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. First of all, The scripture is able to make you wise unto salvation. The scripture is redemptive. In fact, the holy word of God reveals to us our sin through God's holy law. And that that law, that same law that condemns us in our sin, that same law drives us to the Lord Jesus Christ to find forgiveness and mercy I remember quite a few years ago, quite interesting to, to hear another one of my daughter, daughter's uh, proposals uh, in a service like this and to hear this announced. And remember back quite a few years ago when they were giggling together over looking at love letters that my wife and I had sent to one another before we were married. 
And uh, somewhat embarrassed as they read these little letters, not because there was anything in and of itself to be embarrassed, but just, you know, just, you know, how little children are reading these things that I love you and, you know, you know, just uh, giggling together. But yet loving it all the while, giggling and yet enjoying it and in a certain degree wanting the same kind of relationship with their future husbands. Desiring that. Well, dear ones, the Scripture is God's love letter to His elect people. It communicates to us how He has sought us out, how He has chosen us, how He has loved us from eternity and sent His only begotten Son to be our Savior. It is His love letter to His people. It is redemptive. Whatever God's people need to know about their eternal salvation, about justification by faith, about adoption into the family of God, sanctification and glorification is revealed in His written Word. But the Scripture is not only redemptive. The last point is this, that the Scripture is sufficient for every good work that any Christian would ever be called to do in this life. In 2 Timothy 3.17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not only for the works that pertain to salvation, believing in Christ, but for every good work. The Word of God is sufficient. Now, Paul was specifically speaking to Timothy as a man of God. Technically, that phrase, as you look through the Scripture, technically refers to a prophet of God, to one who speaks on behalf of God. It refers to the minister of Jesus Christ. That is what he specifically has in mind in speaking to Timothy. But certainly, uh, in a general sense, the man of God is anyone... Uh, man, woman, or child who is who belongs to God. Regardless of your calling, therefore, whether husband, wife, child, pastor, elder, deacon, member of the congregation, housewife, businessman, teacher, pilot, congressman, president, prime minister, whatever one's calling is, the Holy Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament is our infallible rule for faith and life, for every good work indeed. And I want to make very quickly three applications and I'm finished. Dear ones, we are heirs of the Reformation. We are united together in believing in the sufficiency of all of Scripture. Now granted, the hard work of interpreting Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture, the necessity of the Spirit's illumination of our understanding is all needed. But, dear ones, we have a firm foundation in our Reformation heritage. The Word of God alone is sufficient. And let us continue to work with one another in seeking to know and understand the truth, let us not close our ears. Let us not shut down the discussion and the debate. Let us continue to search the Word of God together.
Second of all, let's never think in terms of the Old Testament being inferior to the New Testament. It is all inspired of God, both Old and New Testament. It is covenantal that we ought to assume that what God says in the Old Testament is true today, unless specifically he annuls, he, he changes, he modifies or amends what he has said. We ought to assume continuity, not assume discontinuity from the Old Testament to the New. We find uh, certainly that to be the case when God wants to tell us that sacrifices are no longer, the ceremonial law is no longer applicable to God's people today. It's very clear in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Galatians, and in other places. The last point of application is, is simply this. Neither the elders of this church nor the presbytery of this church is infallible. We are not Roman Catholics. We do not believe in the infallibility of the elder or the infallibility of the Pope. We are not infallible. That is the Popish position. We do not believe that. But neither do we believe and accept the Anabaptist position of the infallibility of the conscience. That the conscience is infallible either. It is only the word of God that is infallible. It is only the word of God that is sufficient. And for that reason, God help us as his people to continue to strive for the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. The church which he laid down his life to rescue and save. Let us continue to strive to uphold the peace, the purity, and the unity of his church. For his church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. His church is the ground of pillar of the truth. God preserve his church from one age to the next. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, We humble ourselves before you and for, before your truth today. And Lord, we, we call one another to, to renew that covenant which we have made as your people to be submissive only to your word. We ask our God that you would would give to all of us what your apostle spoke of with his son in the faith, that he would have even long-suffering. Lord, you have been most merciful to us. We look back over the course of our lives and we see how you have directed us, how obstinate at times we have been, Oh God, we thank you that you have not allowed us by your grace to, to push that truth from us to where our minds were darkened, 
Oh God, we pray that you would help us in like manner to treat one another as you have treated us. That God, we would reach out. That we would not compromise the standard. That we would not compromise the apostolic tradition, the apostolic teaching. But that God, we would use that word. And that we would use it as iron sharpening iron. Oh Father, we pray that you would give to us a spirit to be easily entreated, willing to yield when we see that one, someone else has the truth. Oh God, help us to be defenders of that truth as well, to guard it with our lives. We ask our God that, that you would bless and preserve your church that you would help her to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that you would help her uh, to be purified from all her false teaching. And Lord, we pray that we would ever be those who are humble, that are not arrogant and proud in, in any area that you have given us truth in. We ask, Father, that you would make us most useful servants for your kingdom. In Jesus' precious name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.